I am calling this talk The Survival and the End of the Preacher. And along the way, we are going to hear a little bit about the stories of heroes and how they may or may not interact with this. So we'll get started with the fact that in 1978, a Lutheran pastor in Indiana um, had published a remarkable little fantasy novel called The Book of the Dun Cow. If you haven't read it recently, go back and reread it. Um, and, and, and if you, heavens forbid, have never read it, read it. Uh, the English-speaking world in 1978 was actually on the verge of a fantasy-lit explosion in, in, in a couple of ways. So Tolkien had died several years earlier. Uh, his son, Christopher, who has only fairly recently retired from editing and compiling and actually contributing to his father's work over many decades. Um, Christopher's in his 90s now. Um, had, had published The Silmarillion, so the great sort of almost Old Testament scale background to the Lord of the Rings and the, the, the stories of, of the elves and such even before humans became major players in the stories. That had been several years earlier. Dungeons and Dragons was just kind of starting to take off as a cultural phenomenon. And in 1977, a new imprint called Del Rey Books published a novel called The Sword of Shannara. I'm not really recommending it. It's really formula, and that's sort of the point. It became the model for the new wave of epic, heroic fantasy kind of clone novels where you have a team of heroes and a quest and a map in the back of the book, and it all feels like a Lord of the Rings knockoff. Um, but this book... This book, Walter Wangeren's book, was a little different. It is not a Tolkien clone. It is a tale about a preacher in the form of a rooster named Chanticleer. Um, Chanticleer because the whole book is dripping with references to medieval literature, uh, which is really Wangeren's area when he, in his life, hasn't been preaching. He's been teaching medieval literature. And Chanticleer the rooster is given liturgical charge over a barnyard full of animals who, unbeknownst to them, were set in guardianship over the earth to contain an evil imprisoned within it. I'm going to read just a bit from the very short chapter 4. In those days, when the animals could both speak and understand speech, the world was round as it is today. It encountered the four seasons, endured night, rejoiced in the day, offered waking and sleeping, hurt, anger, love, and peace to all of the creatures who dwelt upon it as it does today. Birth happened, lives were lived out upon the face of it, and then death followed. These things were no different from the way they are today, but yet some things were very different. For in those days the earth was still fixed in the absolute center of the universe. It had not yet been cracked loose from that holy place to be sent whirling, wild, helpless, and ignorant among the blind stars, and the sun still traveled around the moored earth so that days and nights belonged to the earth and to the creatures thereon, not to a ball of silent fire. The clouds were still considered to flow at a very great height halfway between the moon and the waters below, and God still chose to walk among the clouds striding like a man who strides through his garden in the sweet evening. Many tens of thousands of creatures lived on this still unmoving earth. These were the animals, Chanticleer among them, whom God noticed in his passage above. 
and the glory of it was that they were there for a purpose. To be sure, very few of them recognized the full importance of their being and of their being there. And that ignorance endangered terribly the good fulfillment of their purpose. But so God let it be. He did not choose to force knowledge upon the animals. What purpose? Simply, the animals were the keepers, the watchers, the guards. They were the last protection against an almighty evil, which, should it pass them, would burst bloody into the universe and smash into chaos and sorrow everything that had been made both orderly and good. The stars would be no help against him, and even the angels, the messengers of God, even the dun cow herself, would only grieve before him and then die. For messengers can speak, but they cannot do as the animals could. The earth had a face then, smiling blue and green and gold and gentle, or frowning in a furious gouts of black thunder, but it was a face, and that's where the animals lived, on the surface of it. But under that surface, in its guts, the earth was a prison. Only one creature lived inside of the earth then, because God had damned him there. He was the evil the animals kept. His name was Worm. Deep, deep under the oceans and the continents, under the mountains and under the river which ran from them to Chanticleer's land, Worm crawled. He was in the shape of a serpent, so damnably huge that he could pass once around the earth and then bite his own tail ahead of him. He lived in caverns underneath the earth's crust, but he could, when he wished, crawl through rock as if it had been loose dirt. He lived in darkness, in dampness, in the cold. He stank fearfully because his outer skin was always rotting, a runny putrefaction which made him itch and which he tore away from himself by scraping his back against the granite teeth of the deep. He was lonely. He was powerful because evil is powerful. He was angry, and he hated with an intense and abiding hatred the God who had locked him within the earth. And what put the edge upon his hatred, what made it an everlasting acid inside of him, was the knowledge that God had given the key to his prison in this bottomless pit to a pack of chittering animals. Oh, it was a wonder that Chanticleer the rooster and that a flock of broody hens, a dog, a weasel, and tens of thousands of such like animals, and even that Ebenezer rat, should be the keepers of worm, the little against the large, the foolish set to protect all the universe against the wise. Sum worm, he roared all the day long, sub terra, I am worm under the earth. Yet so deaf were the animals to the way of things that even this dreadful announcement they did not hear. Chanticleer went about crowing his canonical crows and planning his plans and blustering his hands through another day, deaf to the cry and ignorant of his own purpose upon the earth. Dumb feathers made watchers over worm in chains. It was a wonder, but that's the way it was because God had chosen it to be that way. A rooster stood in the middle, and on one particular day he was irritated by the fact that he couldn't finish his sunbath, but that's the way that it was. Chanticleer, our rooster, without giving away the book, is given central role, not the only role by any stretch, but central role in the war to come, in this bit of apocalyptic fantasy. But he is not given the last role. He survives much, much hardship, much sorrow, and some joy to strike a key and meaningful blow. But he is laid low when another whom he despises is given the task of striking the last blow. 
matters pass quite beyond our rooster and his power to crow. He is reduced to irrelevance, and he does not handle that very well. Yesterday, I mentioned Elijah. Chanticleer is caught in a situation familiar to many preachers. It is the situation of Elijah because our faithfulness in office is not rewarded as we expect. Elijah has survived his contest with the prophets of Baal. He has triumphed. And then the wrath of the wicked queen comes to his ears, and he flees into the wilderness, to the mountain of God. And there he whines, I alone am left. It is pitiable, but it is also untrue. The great prophet's prize is to anoint his own replacement. You will anoint Elisha as prophet in your place. The word of the Lord comes to him. And furthermore, this from God, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal or kissed him with their mouths. You aren't remotely alone, Elijah. Not the last one. And this should be comforting to him, but I suspect it is not. It is wounding because he, for all that he has, has done, is inessential. And whatever final victory there will be is not his to win. His work is incomplete. He will not see its end. His sermon, which is his whole life and work containing his whole heart, what prophet is greater than Elijah, doesn't end in visible victory. It ends in the sad diminution of the preacher as he must descend from the lofty pulpit and exit the chancel and be greeted by little old ladies whose faith seems unmoved by what he has said and done. And one day he will depart, and another will take his place, and that will be all for him. So we chose to call this conference Grace, Peace, and Personal Survival for the Preacher. And the, if you haven't figured it out yet, that personal survival bit is half straight and half ironic. We are indeed afflicted. Uh, a preacher needn't compare himself to Job to say that honestly, though I think I actually have known a few pretty close to Job's in this business. But, I mean, the bare fact of it is that there was a time when joining the clergy was simply a respectable line of work. Whether or not you were terribly committed to the God thing, and actually, I think even in those days, most were, but you didn't have to be. There was a decent paycheck. There was a certain amount of status that came with it. That's less and less true. And so I listen to my colleagues, to you and many others, and I hear them describing shrinking flocks and shrinking paychecks. Of course, this church would never shrink. And there are indignities that come with this. 
um, asking for a raise is tough, and a lot of people aren't good at it. Uh, asking not to take a pay cut is brutal. And if this isn't the reality for you personally, you ought to know it is the reality for many of your peers. And it's harder still when the pay cut you're asking not to take would still place your income above that of many in your congregation. These are difficult situations people land in. Burnout, depression, anxiety, weight gain, sleep loss, these are characteristic of our order. Something bizarre has happened. I'm, I think I'm not the only one who, I, I don't know what they're called, these fantasies or nightmares. I don't know what they are. Um, but in the age of mass shootings, we hear stories about somebody bursting into a church and there'd be shooting. There wasn't that one much, very long ago in California. And, 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 and a woman bravely interposed herself between the shooter and her rabbi. And she died. And, and he lost a finger, uh, which isn't much. But, but we, we, we could almost entertain a fantasy of of the preacher bravely sacrificing himself, of dying at the altar, gunned down like a modern-day Thomas Beckett or something. Um, and it's not that this is attractive, but it's more attractive in a weird way. If I've got to go, it's more attractive than just slowly being ground down by the daily humiliations of work. Um, and so in most cases, we are brought to our end in, in, in less dramatic and somewhat more pathetic ways. The fantasy preserves pride, you see, and so it spares the preacher a loss that her actual vocation will not in the end spare. And yet, we have a job to do, even if we don't really understand it. Uh, We may have more than one job to do. We have a message to deliver. And along the way, as we were reminded yesterday, we have stultifying matters of church business to attend to, and they have to be attended to. So like Elijah, we need a little bread and water to get us to the mountain where God will tell us that we are being replaced. We have to live long enough to deliver our sermon and be done. This is personal survival. Now the world and the... uh, glorified upper reaches of church administration have their own name and strategy for this. And it's been used some, and I don't actually object to the name that much. It is self-care. You should take care of yourselves. You should eat better, and you should sleep more, and you should work out a little, and you should take time for your family and your friends. And when I say friends, no, not congregation members. You're not quite allowed to be their friend. Uh, even if they would have you, which they might not. And what is more, you should relax. You should treat yourself. But, you know, not in a way that looks so much fun that anyone might misinterpret any of it, because everybody's watching. Um, yeah. There, okay. So, several years back, I wrote about this image for the Mockingbird website, but I have to say it again. Uh, This abomination. um, I I actually have the slide titled Satan in my notes. 
um, was concocted by the bright minds at the pension funds of the two largest Lutheran denominations in the United States. But it has baptism and Christ at the center, uh, this wholeness wheel, and so it must be very holy, as any piece of theological advertising concocted by a pair of insurance companies really ought to be. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, intellectually, socially, emotionally, physically, financially, vocationally, and spiritually whole. So assess yourself by that standard. How are you? Do you feel better now? Are you a new creation? Or does this make you wonder, what was wrong with my baptism? This was actually encouraged, or intended to encourage self-care in pastors and church employees. It really was. And yet I'm, I'm almost surprised it hasn't been directly implicated in any suicides. We really do need to take care of ourselves. God knows. But nobody ever cared for anything, not even himself, on accounts of threats, and warnings, no matter how dressed up in piety they might be. Self-care as a law, a law grotesquely wrapped in baptism, like an overly done-up corpse at a funeral parlor, is incapable of delivering what it demands. It is still the law. The commandment to self-care produces exactly zero units of self-care. Because that's how laws work. It is like the king of a starving kingdom commanding, you shall eat bread. Or as we call this place in the real world, Venezuela. This is the first of Luther's Heidelberg theses. The law of God, the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance man on his way to righteousness, but rather hinders him. The wholeness wheel cannot bring wholeness. It can only, in bright colors, attack that which is not whole. Or rather, who is not whole? Me, the preacher. Meanwhile, we need actual compassion. We need real self-care. Other care would be nice too. Without these, we won't live long enough to deliver very many sermons in the first place, to play our little part before we are replaced. Elijah needed the ravens to feed him for a while, and then later he needed the angel in the wilderness to remind him to eat and to provide the bread. And when I say remind him to eat, that it actually, the story actually says as he's fleeing through the wilderness towards Mount Horeb, the angel strikes him. He's going to sleep and the angel hits him and wakes him up. <laughs> Get up and eat. We have to survive long enough to deliver our message. But not any longer than that. Because the survival of the preacher is inevitably followed by the death of the preacher. This is what I mean by inevitable. 
I am inevitable. If you haven't seen this movie, I can't, well, I, I, I might be spoiling it for you, except seriously, it's been out for a while, so you clearly don't care, and that's fine. <laughs> what we're dealing with here is the inevitability of the death of the preacher. Now, this is this, this fancy-looking Frenchman. Um, he appears very intellectual, doesn't he? Uh, this, is, this is Roland Barthes. Um, famous, wrote a, a famous essay oh, about 60 years ago uh, called The Death of the Author. Um, title's also a play on medieval literature on Thomas Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur, the, the Death of Arthur, but in French they sound really similar. Um, <laughs> his famous notion here, and, and, and you can't go very far in certain philosophical or literary criticism circles without running into something like this, and it's penetrated into biblical criticism as well. The notion of a, the text as separated from the author, as cut off from the author, of the author is in the end irrelevant because the text, what is written and read and interpreted, is finally not determined by this concept of authorship. Now, let me make that a little more concrete. Anyone who has ever been put off by one of J.K. Rowling's odd little Twitter interventions into the Harry Potter stories can get at least some sense of this. What right does she have to tell me what is true about Harry or Snape or Ron outside of the pages of the books? I could say similar things about George Lucas and Star Wars. I don't care what he thinks these characters are. That's irrelevant or David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, the, the Game of Thrones screenwriters, and their ideas about these things. I don't care. And every other numbskull who dares to confuse their extra-textual or extra-filmic musings about characters and stories with the stories themselves, we don't care. Shut up. You have no privilege here. Our sense of possession of the stories arises precisely because we do not view them as the property of the author. We are invested, we read, we watch, and we understand the way that we want to. And this creates what is today known as the fan theory, these things that run around the internet, and the more insane they are, the more successful. Bizarre ideas about how great stories might even link together across universes or what's really going on. The worst ones are when you read a crazy fan theory and it's actually what happened in the book, just the person wasn't reading very closely. <laughs> now, these might be idiotic or brilliant, but either way, they're mine. See, in my head canon, my version of things, Jar Jar Binks, yeah, he really is a Sith Lord. That's, that's one that's out there. And Bran, yeah, has some dark connection to the Night's King and is an entirely wholesome character at the end. And Joe Rowling's fan theories are not better than mine just because she, at some point in the past, happened to write the books. That gives her opinion zero more weight than mine right now. Now this is true for preachers and sermons as well, and we all know it. As soon as you've opened your mouth on a Sunday morning, the sermon is out there and it's no longer yours to control. People will tell you what it meant to them. Sometimes you wish they hadn't. <laughs> this is without a doubt diminishing and frustrating. Now the word is out there, it's not mine. Yeah, I said it for a little bit, but 
I, I can't even be held responsible for it anymore. I just, whatever. This is diminishing and frustrating. My intentions don't matter. That's Roland Barthes' contribution to helping us understand ourselves. Uh, but the death of the preacher is, I think, even worse than this. J.K. Rowling might be unsatisfied with bits of what she wrote or how people read it, which is why she keeps weighing in, sprinkling in other stuff, trying to influence it. But the books still exist. They're out there, and they're not going away. And they're finished. They tell a complete story. Whatever one thinks the last season or so of Game of Thrones, it's there. It's complete. It's done. It can now be assessed apart from the author, who after all hasn't really died so much as been subsumed into the now completed work. That might be frustrating, but that is a form of survival. Unfortunately, we preachers are not like that. Our work is incomplete. It is always incomplete. The Winds of Winter is the sixth book in the Song of Ice and Fire, George Martin's you know, books that inspired Game of Thrones. Um, and he has been working on it for how many years now? More than ten, I believe. More than ten years. It's not finished. It is just there. Sadly, you and I are not even David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, the Game of Thrones writers. We are George Martin endlessly plugging along at the winds of winter with hardly a dream of spring in our heads. We preach sermons, but we never hear the end of them. I proclaim the resurrection of the dead, but not one corpse ever stood up at one of my funerals. I preach the healing and the restoration that is in Christ but I don't see it very much. I forgive sins, but the last judgment stubbornly still looms in the distance. It hasn't quite shown up for me. This isn't actually a new problem. At the end of Romans 15, Paul sets out his intention to, after visiting Jerusalem, go on from Rome to Spain. He's going to the ends of the earth, you see. He intends to make an offering to God of the Gentiles, the nations, gathering them all up in true sort of Old Testament resonance and are offering them to the Lord God as the consummation of his work. This is how Paul sees his role as apostle to the Gentiles. But his journey stops at Rome. And he doesn't even get there by the means he intended when he wrote Romans. <laughs> it's quite different. He is delivered up to be tried and ultimately to lose his head. His sermon, his offering, his ministry remain incomplete, and they still are today. They're not finished. The full number of the Gentiles has not come in. The work's not over. The nations have not returned to God Paul is dead and his work is incomplete. One of the Gospels even makes this unfinished business explicit. The Gospel of Mark bothers a lot of people because it ends in such awkward 
ugly fashion. Chapter 16, verse 8, second half of the verse, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. It's even uglier in Greek, where the last word is gar, which just means for. It ends on a conjunction of all parts of speech, just hanging there forever. This is the worst way to end a book. There's no satisfying reunion with the risen Jesus. There's no eyes of the apostles opened. There's not even faith at the end. There's just fear, confusion, and ugly grammar. My grandmother would have hated it had she been able to read Greek. We know this bothers people, preachers like us, because they tried to fix it twice. We have, and you open your Bibles, and you'll usually see the so-called shorter and longer endings of Mark. And they are attested in some, but by no means in the majority of, or the oldest or the most reliable ancient manuscripts. They're patches to fix Mark, to bring it to completion. And don't you believe the fanciful theories that maybe the real ending got cut off by accident, like somebody lost the last page? It's nonsense. This is no accident. It is perhaps a divine joke, but it is not an accident. It is part of the fabric of the gospel, and we don't understand it properly until we see how it is woven into the gospel. You want proof? Don't look at the end of Mark. Look at the beginning. Mark is very odd in that it actually has an original title, one we don't use. We don't call it this. Um, And that title is not Mark. Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, Once in a while, a book actually will end with the end. No book ever begins with the beginning, because that's just too stupid for words. (laughs) Mark is a lot of things, but it's not stupid. The first verse is a title, the title of the whole book, The Beginning of the Good News of Jesus Christ the Son of God. The whole book is called The Beginning. And if that's the beginning, where's the end? It's not in the book. It is incomplete, incomplete by design. Mark has done his part, said his piece, and Mark is dead. And he, whoever he was, was a better preacher than all of us. But his book is incomplete. It has to reach completion. It must. If Jesus was not raised, there is no book. If the women said nothing to anyone and went away afraid, and that's it. There is no book, not even an incomplete one. We couldn't have gotten it that way. And so there's a next step. The thing that must be true for any of us to be preachers at all. And that is that one of those women, having heard the news of Jesus' resurrection, preached a sermon, incomplete, though it was. And someone picked up that incomplete sermon and carried it forward into another incomplete sermon and preached it again and again and again. And now you have heard it. And you preach your sermons too. And they are all unfinished, the same sermon, but they're heading somewhere. 
So this is true. Not one of us will ever finish a job. There are no completed ministries. The death of the preacher is inevitable because we cannot outlive this work we are given. We cannot reach its end. The word, well done, good and faithful servant, cannot come in this life and allow us to look back on a finished product. It's not the way it's going to be for us. So the death of the preacher comes because just as when Iron Man snaps his fingers to play his part in restoring all things, the game is still up for him. That's all he has left to give. He's got his role to play. And he's lucky in Avengers Endgame, he gets to, he gets to play the, the big role. But the world doesn't stop there. Everything isn't just great again. It's, the story doesn't actually end. He just gave all he had to give. He has an act to perform, a blow to strike, or better, a message to deliver. And then his little incomplete part is done, and he is done with it. He may have saved others. He cannot save himself. The death of the preacher comes not because the preacher is cut off from his message, as in the death of the author, but because the preacher is entirely bound up in his message. There's nothing really left of him at all, just that message. It's all we have. In a bizarre way, it becomes all we are. Just the sermon, everything dries up and blows away. And this, oddly enough, really is the way of many fictional heroes, if you look closely. Of the best ones, I should say. Of the greatest stories, because they tell something more true. The story who, the, the, of, of the hero who can complete everything and sit on the throne and look around and all things are good, that's not a good enough story. It's not true. It's not how these things actually work. It's not just Tony Stark who doesn't really get to see and enjoy the victory. Frodo can bear the ring almost up to the end. But having carried it, it overcomes him. And there's nothing really left of him in this world, and at last, Gollum, whom he did not expect, uh, must bear the ring all the way to destruction. Beowulf can kill Grendel, and he can kill Grendel's mother, two great monsters, and can be a great king, and at the last he can fight the dragon. He can even slay that dragon, but he cannot survive that last battle. And so he cannot enjoy or oversee the kingdom free from threat. The doomed knights of Game of Thrones, the Jamie Lannisters or Jorah Mormonts. These are folks, if you watch the show or you read the stories, you can smell like the, the stink of doom on them. You know they can't actually make it to an ending they can enjoy. Uh, you see they have plot armor. Do you all know, all know that term? Uh, plot armor is the invisible armor a hero wears. They might also have visible armor on, but the invisible armor that a hero wears which preserves them through all danger right up until the moment when they're actually no longer needed in the story. It's the reason why Rambo doesn't even have to wear a shirt. He just can't get shot. It's the reason why stormtroopers can't shoot straight. That's plot armor. These guys have plot armor. They've survived so, so much. 
but you know that there comes a moment when they're no longer essential to the story, and then you start feeling, uh-oh, this is, it's coming soon, isn't it? They're going down. We know what is true for them. All men must die, and the story must go on without them. It is sometimes said, appropriately, I think, that a preacher only really has one sermon. It takes a lot of forms. Only really has one. That's actually the point of the name, Mockingbird. The bird has no song of its own. It just repeats what it has heard. Well, then, if we have one sermon, and that one sermon as we preach it is yet incomplete and has been, ever since Mark handed it over to us, perhaps ever since God rested on the seventh day, gave this into our charge, our keeping, and what foolishness is that for him to hand this over into preachers such as these, especially with the seemingly almighty evil we are up against? Well, then we know the preacher cannot survive his own sermon, and we know this because our Lord Jesus did not. But God raised him from the dead. That is the survival of the preacher, who no longer lives in herself, but in Jesus, the word, the living sermon of God. That is the end of the preacher, not where he comes to a close, but where he is heading, not inevitably, certainly not by his own power, but because God has promised it, and God's promises always come. Because that is the content and the heart of the sermon. The resurrection of Jesus our Lord and the summing up of all things in him, you and me and all the weak and fragmented preachers and sermons of this world included. You are the instruments by which God preaches his one sermon to the ends of the earth. Paul wasn't wrong in calling himself apostle to the Gentiles. I do think he let it just get a little out of hand in that he assumed there wouldn't be need for that many more of them. Paul didn't get the job done. You won't get the job done. But God will keep on pushing his sermon into your ears and out of your mouth. And you are infinitely beloved to him on that account. And all your sins, even in this preaching, are forgiven. And your ministry is holy. There's nothing holier. And one day, that message will have gone out to all the earth. And God will stop preaching that sermon. And you, along with every creature, will know that it is finished, just as he once said from the cross. And so you, together with all creatures, will say the one thing left to say when everything has already been said. Amen.